0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.
1: I know there are a number of other classes going on, so I appreciate you coming to this one. Uh, it's the fourth of five lessons here on various views on atonement. And each of these I've started off talking about this great painting here from Matthias Grunwald that in my opinion sort of captures some of the great agony but also mystery, some of the great emotions, of a great art, uh, powerful interpretation of what this event means uh, for us not only as Christians uh, but for the whole world. And there have been many ways in which the, the church, based upon how this experience was received and interpreted by the apostles, understood what this did for the world. What has this done for us when Christ died and rose from the dead? What, what has changed and how did it change and why did it change? And these are what's called the doctrine of atonement. That is, these kinds of explanations that talks about the change between God and us in light of what Christ has done for us. And one of the things I have wanted to insist on is that the atonement has various ways to be explained. And in order to appreciate, I think, the great scope and comprehensiveness, the mystery of the atonement, we need to learn something from these multiple ways. I'm going to argue, as I've already that each has some truth to it. It sheds some light. It illuminates more the experience of the (coughs) atonement but not just one of them by themselves. They're all credible. I think they're powerful. We should affirm them. But together, they help us understand more of the great power and the mystery of the atonement itself. And so part of the reason why I wanted to offer this course on the atonement was that very fact that we need to appreciate the wonder and mystery of, the, of atonement. And one way we do that is not to reduce it just to one viewpoint because the Scriptures themselves, as I'm going to argue today, offer multiple views of what the atonement is. One way by which I think the Scriptures help us understand atonement is that they offer sort of pictures or metaphors, images, visual sort of concepts that one can have about these. The first one we looked at, this penal substitution view, is that atonement was sort of what goes on in a courtroom. If you're a lawyer, you know what goes on in a courtroom. Someone is tried, they're convicted, they're declared guilty, and they're going to be punished. Well, in that view, Christ comes and bears our punishment and frees us from being guilty. Also, we saw several weeks ago this notion of deliverance, that we are under the sway of death and the devil. We're captured by them. We're locked in to their death grips. And Christ comes and rescues us by bearing our own death and by fighting against evil. And here are the, the image is one of rescue. Christ has come and rescued us from something that we couldn't free ourselves from. Then we saw it last week the moral persuasion that what Christ has done is to show us the indomitable the in inquenchable love of God and this persuades us to change our lives that is a subjective view of atonement i think it's a legitimate but it's not the only way of understanding what the atonement is and the basic model there the image of it the metaphor is one of romance christ just comes and out loves us and changes our heart in that way what Today I'm going to look at a different way of looking at it. Maybe some of us haven't really considered this. It's called the cosmic recapitulation theory or restoration theory. And the basic metaphor, and I'll come back to this metaphor at the end of the discussion today, is that it's a hospital, that we're sick. We can't get out of our own deathbed. We have done something because of sin. We have suffered something because of the effects of evil and we're dying. And someone comes and heals us in the world itself. The basic metaphor then is one of a hospital. And that's what I'm calling here the cosmic recapitulation or restoration. Bear with me as I flip through some of this. Cosmic restoration. The whole cosmos is now part of the atonement. What we saw in the penal substitution is that your problem is solved. God has come in Christ and solved your guilt problem. But this view, though, represents how God solved the problem of the world. Not just my problem, not just the human problem, but all of creation. And this is wrapped up with a full story of Christ. Instead of just concentrating on the cross, it also emphasizes the incarnation. That God, the creator word, became flesh that the Christian claim is based on that incredible paradox that God becomes flesh, the Word became flesh, that Christ was born through the Virgin Mary, and God took on humanity. And in that bore, experienced, brought into God's own self what it meant to be a human being, to be a creature in the world. This incarnate Word is eventually crucified, resurrected, ascends, and will return. This view of atonement tries to incorporate all those aspects that God really was born in Christ and God really will come back and recreate the world into a new heaven and a new earth. What I want to do, there are about nine or ten different scriptures that I want to look at here to talk about this view. And I'm going to call this the narrative from Genesis to Revelation of the cosmic restoration. Um, just parenthetically. <coughs> Uh, You may have not really thought much about this or heard much about this point of view, but I'll tell you, at least one-third of Christendom believes this. This is basically the viewpoint of Eastern Orthodoxy. That if you've ever been involved with an Orthodox person or gone to an Orthodox church or read a theologian or two uh, of Greek Orthodoxy, this is their primary viewpoint of the atonement. And that is God has come in Christ and is going to restore the whole world Back to God. Now I, uh, you know, being raised as a Baptist preacher's kid, I, I understood most everything from a revivalist point of view. You got to get right with God. You got to give your heart to God. And that, all that's true, perfectly legitimate. I didn't have any kind of concept that God was going to recreate the heaven and earth. I sort of grew up, and my father was an intelligent man, but being his kid, I just didn't listen to him. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, he 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 thought all this through. I, I was busy thinking about other things, I guess. Uh, but I just thought it was me and God and I'm going to get out of here one of these days and go to heaven. And all this stuff here is just going to be left behind. Well, no, that's not right. That's a bad view. Now, you can get right with God. Yes, your heart can be turned over and you'll go to heaven. Yes. However, though, God is still the God of creation. At the beginning, in fact, that's the first thing that we find out about God, that God is a creator. In the beginning, God said. And so God created out of God's own inner being. The words come from God. So creation is an extension of God's inner life. Like when you communicate, your words come inwardly and outwardly. You intend to say something. You're communicating the inside so it can be understood outside. Creation in that light then is the outside manifestation of the inward desire of God to be a creator. That's the first thing we find out about creation. And it is good. After each of the six days, God said it is good. On the seventh day, remarkably, God dwelt on that seventh day. It is a holy day. Remember in, this, in the creation account, on the seventh day God rested and we are to rest on the Sabbath day. Why? Because it is a sacred day. It is a holy day. God. Here, here's, we could talk a long time about this. But creation has the capacity to have its creator to become in its midst. We live in a world that is, here I'm stretching language as far as it can go, malleable, flexible, communicable enough, where its creator can come even to the point to become born of a woman in it. We live in such a world as this. Creation is not opposite of God. Creation is capable of having God within it. And this is the goodness of the world. In fact, we know it most on the Sabbath day. We rest so that we can experience God in holiness on the Sabbath day. However, something has gone wrong, as you know. Adam and Eve rebelled, Cain slew Abel, and it's all been downhill ever since. The world is sick, it's marred, it's corrupted because of sin, and consequently the works of evil as well. That the world is, in a sense, not what it is supposed to be. And so we live in a state in which we are separate from God, alienated from God. Well, this begins, I think, I'm just going to look at a few passages here a long telling of how God intends to restore creation. One of the great passages that I think that indicates this is near the end of the great prophet Isaiah, starting with verse 17. For I am about to create a new heavens and a new earth. The former thing shall not be remembered or come to mind. Here Isaiah sees the ultimate culmination of God's work what God is intending to do, that everything that God is doing from this point to finally, God's final work, is to bring about a new heaven and a new earth. That's not a rejection of the old. It is a healing of the old. It is a restoration of the old. It's not some sort of new dimension or experience way up in some sort of supernatural realm. It's a new heaven and a new earth. God's going to recreate the earth. This is Isaiah's great vision. Then, this theme, I think, obviously, is strongly experienced throughout the Scriptures. And in a way, it's picked up in the New Testament with the Apostle Paul there in Romans chapter 5. If you're familiar with that passage, he contrasts what he calls the old Adam with the new Adam. The old Adam is all of humanity. All of us who share what one could call the Adamic sin. That is, we share the consequences of living in a sick world. That we are, in a sense, uh, so marred by our own sin, so crippled by the effects of evil, we cannot heal ourselves. It would be like going up to someone who's paraplegic and say, just walk. Well, we cannot. I can't get myself out of the wheelchair. That's the old Adam. The old Adam may do some interesting things, may occasionally do something kind, beautiful and kind, but in the end, though, it's still struggling with his own illness. However, though, what Paul says, starting verse 18 in chapter 5, Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, that's our state, we are the old Adam. So one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. What Christ has done is to make possible justification and life for all. Not just me, not just you, not just us, but for all. Christ's justification is a healing of everything. Therefore, He is indeed the new Adam. Then there's this wonderful passage by the Apostle Peter, 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 4. I'll, I'll back up and go to verse 3. His divine power, talking about Christ, has given us everything needed for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Thus, He has given us through these things His precious and very great promises so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust and may become partakers of the divine nature. We have a capacity through what Christ has done for us to partake. Interesting word, or participate, to join with. It's not that we become divine. That's never a biblical concept at all. Not that there's anything God about me, but that in some ways Christ has enabled us to participate, to partake of the divine nature. We can become so one with God that God's reality, God's glory, God's majesty just folds over onto us. And we radiate because of that. Not because of anything innate in us, but because of the presence of God. We can partake in the divine nature. That's an incredible claim. I'm going to come a little later on about why the church stayed with that idea and why it was so important for us to believe that we could actually become one in in relationship, not in substance, but in relationship with God. Then I'm going to go to another sermon here by, uh, by Peter. It's in Acts chapter three twenty one. Actually I'm going to start with seventeen. And now, friends, I know that you are acted in ignorance as you did your rulers, as so did the rulers. In this way God fulfilled what has been foretold through all the prophets. That is, Messiah would suffer. Repent, therefore, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah appointed for you, that is, Jesus, who must remain in heaven until the time of universal restoration that God announced long ago through his holy prophets. New heaven, new earth. Christ is at this very second working in God's own unique, mysterious ways, towards this universal restoration. Or another another way to translate as recapitulation. That Christ is working in a way now to restore what was sick, broken, lost, disabled, corrupted, back to its original relationship with God. Some way or another, Christ is working through human history to restore everything, not just me, but everything. The new heaven and new earth, back to God. In a way we can understand providence, you know, personally, God answers our prayers, collectively, God undergirds the church with gifts, but we can also understand it cosmologically, that God providentially is working within everything, in a sense, to reorder it so it be in its proper glory with God. That's a powerful notion. The apostle Paul repeats it a couple more times in Ephesians chapter one verse ten. Here he says, uh, actually I'm going to back up to uh, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, that is atonement. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight he has made known to us through the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth the new heaven and the new earth that Isaiah talked about here Paul says again Christ is gathering up all things reconstructing them restoring them rightly orienting all things so that at one point the whole world will radiate with the glory and the presence of God same idea is picked up in Colossians chapter 1 verses 17 and 20 Uh, Verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He Himself is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead so that he might come to have the first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. The atonement, what we saw there in the Eisenheim altarpiece, that act enables the whole world now to be reconciled to God. Christ here holds together everything. Christ as the Creator Word in the beginning was the Word, all things were made by the Word, became flesh. This one that we know in the person of Christ is indeed what holds together everything. Think of it like <clears throat> using the metaphor again of sickness in hospital, that one can be sick and have a disease, but the the immune system kicks in and slowly over a period of time overcomes the invasive bacteria or virus. That inwardly within the body, there's this wonderful immune system. What, well, what we see here is that in creation itself, there's a power at work, an immune system at work. That Christ, in a sense, is the eternal immune system that is healing the world. So that all things can be, they can throw away their, their crutches. They can get off the wheelchair. That the effects of sin and evil will eventually be healed and wiped out and we can be restored and all experience God again in the new heaven and new earth. It's a, it's a powerful concept. Uh, two more verses. <clears> 1 <throat> Corinthians 15. 1 uh, Corinthians 15 is perhaps one of the great chapters in all the scriptures that deal with the future, in particular with the resurrection of the dead. And in that, the Apostle Paul comes to this conviction. That is when Christ raises everyone from the dead, but in fact, starting verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits are those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For all die in Adam, the first Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, the second Adam. <coughs> Pardon me. But each in his own order, first Christ, the first fruit, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom of God, the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the one who has put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him so that God may be all in all. God's going to be all in all. All of creation now will be filled with the presence of God. That the course of history is being moved processed in a way in which Christ is subjecting all these things that have become the enemy of God to a point where finally, by atoning for it all, to use the other word that Paul used, justifying it all, healing it all, he offers it to God the Father, and then the glory of God will permeate every molecule of creation. And it will bask in the great majesty of God. This is the God is all in all. What a magnificent view. This is picked up finally here in this great narrative of the restoration. In in Hebrews, I mean, excuse me, the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 1. This is Isaiah's vision where it all starts. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. This is what the Apostle John sees. The revelation that he has here is what also Isaiah saw He sees the final culmination of all the work of Christ redeeming, restoring, justifying the world so that God can be all in all. And that's a new heaven and a new earth. It's a magnificent vision. It's part of the biblical story. It is a great narrative that connects Genesis to Revelation. That sin, death, and the devil hasn't so abused the world that God is neglecting it that our pride and arrogance and malice and greed and hate and envy, all these things that have just sickened the world, introduced bacteria spiritually, virus spiritually into people's lives and created such mayhem that the story of history, as Hegel said it is, it's the slaughter bench of humanity. It is. But God's love is even greater than that, than our harm. God's desire to be at one with God created is so powerful that God will work in a way to heal that. Let me ask you a question before I move on. In light of this, this is going to sound a little flippant, but I'm halfway serious in asking Do all dogs go to heaven? Do all dogs go to heaven? I'm halfway being facetious so beautiful about this is that dogs
0: matter, the trees matter, the streams matter, every atom God created down here matters. And we've been so negligent of it and selfish of it. And I do think who cares. There you go.
2: And I think that question though sort of in a way it's like mm-hmm. half a question in a way because it doesn't it doesn't take into account the new heavens and the new earth. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, I mean, it, it seems to me that just, you know, when you bury Fido in the backyard, just, you know, his spirit. You know, I yeah, think right. that's not the. Question. I
1: agree. I agree. with You,
2: you know, the, the, the question is, are they going to be there with the new creation, the new heavens mm-hmm. and the earth? And I would say, yes.
1: Right. You. You. I think you got what I'm trying to get at here. Yes. Don't think of the fact that they have a little soul that all of a sudden leaves the body and goes up to dog heaven. That that doesn't quite capture the full significance, I think, of this great narrative. That God loves creation. God loves dogs. I, I could sit here... I know I could sit here four or five hours and just go over 30, 40 verses in the Scripture that talk about how God knows all the animals of the world. God knows every bird. God cares for the beasts of the field. He feeds them. Go read Psalm 104. You cannot help but just... Be just ex- elevated, you know, ecstatic with the great care that God has for everything, not just your soul, not just me, but for everything. God cares for it all. And God is the great physician, and God's going to heal this. And this is the great hope that the Doctrine of the Atonement gives us. And so, yes, we should care for the rocks, the trees, and so. Why? Because it's God's. And we're here as a representative of God, not as a God over it, but as a representative of God of creation, giving it this, this great word that this is not the final event that's going to happen to you. The evil here, the sickness here, the death there, the marring, the polluting, that's not the final word. The world's not going to end up as a big dump, a big garbage disposal. That's not the world. We have brought it to that, but again, the power of God as the great physician is going to heal this. Yeah. But the, you,
2: know, asking the you know, the, the dogs go to heaven, also sort of illustrates that the question about us is also bigger than that. And it's kind of what you were saying earlier when you were young, that, you know, it was just between you and God and yeah. I'm good, you know, I'm going to go to heaven. And it's it's so much more, not that that's insignificant. Correct. <laughs> but it's but just it's part so, of the story. It's, yeah, it's so, much, it's so much more than that. And I didn't realize when you made the comment earlier that sort of this was sort of the dominant... View of the, of the way the Eastern Church That's right. looked at it. That's right. And you know, I would say that the Western Church could do a better job.
1: Oh yeah, exactly. Exactly. I agree. As well. I agree. Yes. Uh,
0: can this be used as a uh, proof that the, that God is going to save everybody? Universalism. Universalism.
1: Well, I I know why you asked that question. Uh, give me about fifteen minutes okay. before I offer an answer. Because I want to look at a couple of theologians and how they might respond to that question. All right, what I want to do now is to look at how some very famous theologians in the history of the church have built on this biblical narrative. That God is the creator, there will be a new heaven and the earth. Christ has justified us to the point where eventually we'll be all in all with God and experience the eternal glory of God in a new heaven and in a new earth. Irenaeus, a magnificent early church theologian, he was the bishop of Lyons, you see there his dates, he died in 202. Uh, He also lived in a part of what one could call Asia Minor and then southern France that was very much in the throes of controversy with what was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was an early religious movement that was very powerful, very dominant in some ways. Uh, that uh, mingled some Christian teachings with other concepts of God and redemption and so on. But at the heart of Gnosticism was this idea of a radical dualism of spirit and matter. Spirit is good, matter is inherently evil. The world, because it's material, is evil. Salvation, then, is to get out of this realm of darkness, this realm of evil. And Christ in some of the Gnostic works, is the one who comes from above, who tells us the secret stories. The word Gnostic means knowledge. Gives us the secret knowledge. And hence enables our souls to be liberated out of the earth. Because there's no way the Creator God, I mean the the true eternal God, the absolute God, could have made a world like this that could become so corrupted and dark. God's, you know, plan of salvation is to get us to be escaping this, not to be reforming it or restoring it. And so this became a very powerful alternative to Christianity, as in some ways I think it is today. A lot of religiosity, oftentimes going on in church buildings, uh, is basically Gnostic. That is, the world is evil. Your God inside, God's Christ is here to awaken your divine nature, so that you can go back to the eternal God. That that I think. It's true on, on both the left and the right, by the way. But Irenaeus knew it to be fundamentally wrong, even though it was popular, because it is so contrary to the heart of the Scriptures. Because, the very, as we said earlier, the very first thing we find out about God is that God made the world and called it good. Mm-hmm. An evil God did not make the world. God made the world. We marred it. Evil has crept in into the world. Not that God corrupted it, but that evil crept into the world and corrupted him. And God's design is to restore it. So, Ioneus fought hard against that notion. That is, this dualism that separates God from creation itself. And one of the ways he tried to combat Gnosticism, and this is, I think, one of the reasons why this viewpoint of atonement is good for us, we should adopt it, is it's a way to overcome this kind of cynical, uh, pessimistic, uh, Neolistic view of the earth. Here's a, one of his his great quotes that expresses this: <clears throat> The Son of God, when He was incarnate and was made man, recapitulated in Himself the long line of men, giving us salvation compendiously, so that when we had lost in Adam, I mean, what we had lost in Adam is that we should be after the image and similar to the God, this we should receive in Jesus Christ. The key word there is recapitulate. His theory is is a little far-stretched, but if we grant him some sort of imagination here, I think it, it, it is a visual way of understanding recapitulation that Christ was conceived in the womb as every human being has been conceived in the womb. So all that have been conceived of the womb, Christ, the Son of God, the Creator Word, shares that with them. Christ was an infant. So all infants, Christ now shares their infancy. Toddler, young adult, old, and then finally dies. All death God now shares through the death of Jesus Christ. So it's almost like going around and picking up baggage. You know you pick up this baggage, this suitcase, this baggage, and you're carrying them all to the final destination. Christ comes in to the world, becomes incarnate, and picks up preborns, picks up infants, picks up toddlers, picks up teenagers, picks up the middle age, the dying, and in the resurrection recapitulates every stage of life along the way and Irenaeus then sort of by extension said, well." <coughs> These lives occurred also in time and space, in a particular location. Everybody was born somewhere. And in Christ recapitulating you, Christ also recapitulated your space at the same time. Because you have to have space to live. You have to be somewhere to be a person. So in recapitulating and then ultimately restoring everything, Christ restores all of creation in doing that. Everything now is brought up into what Christ has done. In atoning for us, in being able to reconcile us with God the Father, Christ actually reconciles the whole earth. And this becomes a very prominent view in the Eastern Church. Another famous theologian that contributed much to this was Athanasius of Alexandria. If you read much of the ancient church, he is one of the... um, Hall of Famers, I would say, Athanasius. And one of the reasons I'm saying that is that he was the real theological underpinning behind the Council of Nicaea. Uh, uh, you, You know, you read the Creed of Nicaea, the Nicaean Creed in the Eucharist, the communion service. That was the result of a long debate, by the way, the Council of Nicaea. Probably some of you have read about the Council before. It's, it's a fascinating study. And I think it's really instructive for all of us. And it was a debate between how do you look at the nature of God in Christ? Arius said that Jesus' nature is similar to God the Father. That Greek word was homo as has an iota right in the middle. homoousios, Similar. Athanasius came back and said, Now, now, wait a minute. I can see why you say that, but that's not what the apostles said. Arius said only God can be God. A man cannot be God. Impossible. The earth cannot be indwelled by its creator. No way, because the worlds are separate. It's like two poles the same poles of magnus. Like you just can't get them together. You cannot get a creator and creature, a creator, a creator and a creature becoming incarnate. You cannot get God in the world. So Jesus, yeah, is the son of God, but only similar in nature. And Athanasius came and said, no, the story of the Scriptures is that Christ is the same. Homoousia. That's the word. Homoousia. Same substance with God the Father. So what we have in Christ, and here's the power of this, and this is why the the, 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 the Nicene Creed is so fundamental for us. Of course, we have to interpret it. It's, it's expressed in language that we don't necessarily use today. But why it's so important that it, it says what we have in Jesus is really of God what Christ has atoned for and reconciled, God has really done. That what Christ has restored to God the Father, we know to be true because it was done by God the Father. It wasn't like somebody else. It wasn't an attempt. It actually was the being of God that did it. Well, Athanasius, when he is thinking about uh, the consequences of this homoousius, the same substance in Christ as God the Father, he uses a word here that for most of us in the West, that is Christianity shaped by Western Christendom, uh, will not use and very hesitant to use. And so we're going to have to work a little hard here to understand what Athanasius meant by it. And that is the end result of the atonement is theosis, T-H-E-O-S-I-S, or divinization. You become divinized because of Christ atonement. Now, There's no way Athanasius would ever say you are homoousius with God. Only Christ is homoousius. We don't become God in the atonement. I'm still a creature that needs to be redeemed. But I can become so at one with God because of what Christ has done that God's reality takes me over and I become divinized. Look at it like this. It's like uh, if this room were completely dark and we put Gil up here on the front, we got a big, huge spotlight and just shined it on him. He would become illuminated with that light. We wouldn't know who he was without that light. Without that light, we wouldn't recognize him. That light illuminates his being. Well, what Christ does is Christ illuminates us. We become, in a sense, one with the light. God in Christ, the source of that light. And that's what he means by theosis. Here are some quotes from this very significant book called On the Incarnation. God became man so that man may become gods. Again, that's not homoousios; It's becoming one with God, not as God. <clears throat> also, for the solidarity of mankind is such that by virtue of the words indwelling in a single human body, the corruption which goes with death has lost its power over all. Christ indwelled in us. Therefore, we have the power to overcome the death that He overcame. Now, it's not because you've got something in you that can defeat death. It's not that I possess something, even my soul. My soul will die with me. When I die, I die body, spirit, and soul, because all of that is a creature. However, though, because of Christ's atonement, redemptive power, Christ in a sense dwells within human nature, just like that enzyme system that I was talking about as an analogy. Christ comes within our bodies through the work of the power of the Holy Spirit and is able to transform us into a resurrected state. We become divinized, so to speak. We become at one with God because of the power of the work of the Holy Spirit within us. So Christ here then not just does that for you and for me, for your parents, your children, but he does it for dogs. He does it for the trees. He does it for all of creation. That the creative power of God is not just a human thing, not just anthropocentric. It is creationocentric. That is, it comes within all elements of creation and revives it, regenerates it in a sense. <clears throat> Athanasius also had this view that um, all the world's going to be restored. Now, here is a contemporary Orthodox theologian named Callistos Ware. Uh, he was born in 1935, so he's, he's well up into his age. Uh, I don't know if he's still active. He was what's called the Metropolitan of Orthodoxy in Great Britain. He probably is the most widely known and quoted uh, Orthodox theologian. He taught at Oxford for a number of years. Uh, I actually had the privilege of... of going on a retreat that he led in Walsingham, England. Uh, I had befriended an Orthodox priest when I was studying at Cambridge for a semester. And he said, hey, would you like to go on a pilgrimage to Walsingham? Uh, that's another story. And I said, well, sure, I'd be glad to. And it's going to be led by Callistos Ware. And I went, whoa, that's, that's pretty good privilege here. Because I had heard of him before. He wrote it, Probably his most read book uh, is called The Jesus Prayer. Uh, and then The Orthodox Way. Those are really good books. But uh, I remember at one point, I've got a couple of minutes here, Clistos Ware said that um, he was talking about Origen, another ancient theologian, very definitive for the Orthodox viewpoint, that Origen said that if if you were to turn over a rock, (coughs) God would be there. Now, once again, coming from the revivalist background that I was raised in, such a concept is different, weird, incredible. But not if you think God is restoring all of creation. Not if you think that the world means so much to God, God's not going to abandon it. Not if you think that the world is inherently evil and opposite of God. But if we think that God loves the creation that God started, that God wants it all to be part of the original intention that God had toward it, then yes, every rock you pull back, God is in there. God is everywhere working Restore everything. Back to your question. Does that mean everyone eventually will be restored? Typically, the majority of people who hold this would say yes. Not because of anything they've done or have or possess, but because of the great redemptive work of God. If God can overcome a world that is sick, then God can overcome. All rebellious sinners as well. It's not because they are of merit, but because of the power of God's love. Now, some argue no. That uh, I've read also people who maintain this view. <clears throat> you ever heard of the old morality play called the Howering I mean, the Howring of Hell. The Howring of Hell. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a macabre play that. Uh, is about Christ and the devil, and Christ goes down into Hades. You know, in you know, he descended into hell. He goes down to Hades, and he wants to convert the Satan itself, the devil. His primary mission is to some way or another to redeem evil itself, and evil rejects it, and God's heart is broken over it, but allows evil to continue to reject God's work. So in that sort of viewpoint, those who hate God will remain in hatred of God, but in some ways God's love will even overcome their hatred and use it in some way. So this notion of universalism is a fuzzy notion. It, I think, can obviously be misused if you think that everybody's good and they're going to go to heaven based upon their own merits. That's, that's totally out of the pale of Christian thinking. But in some ways, if you think that God's love can be powerful enough it can actually overcome those sort of things then I would say that's something to hope for. Let me say that. I'm not sure how to answer that question. I know in scriptures it talks about a lot of people going to heaven. They talk about a lot of people going to hell, even though it does mention hell. I still think the concept of hell is a legitimate theological doctrine. But here's where it gets hard for us as Christians. If we do think that's just punishment for the rebellious, the cruel, the satanic of the world, We cannot allow that even to trump the love of God. We cannot allow the rebellious heart in any way stifle the great restorative acts of God. We cannot. How to hold those two together is difficult. So my answer is not satisfactory, is it? (laughs) You wanted a yes or no answer. Um, I hope in some ways God's power can be so great that even that which is rebellious can be transformed. I hope that can be... Uh, if it is not, then I still believe in God's love. I believe God's love will not be defeated. I believe the new heaven and new earth is going to happen regardless of all the wickedness and sorrow that has happened in the world. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that. We have to believe that as Christians. <clears throat> I've got one minute here and I'll get out of here. Just a concluding mark. This idea of the cosmic restoration, basic metaphors, the hospital, everything gets healed. We believe in that. It's appeal I think it has strong appeal. It's the wonder of God's presence. Like Origen said, you pull back at the rock and there's God. Can we see the secular and sacred ways? Can we see the profane and holy ways? This enables us to do this. God's at work in all things. It's a hope of reconciliation. We don't give up on it. We don't end up in despair. Just, I wish I could go on a little bit longer in this, but, you know, the study of human history could lead someone to just utter despair. This is so tragic, no hope. But you read this great story in Scripture, even in light of the tragedy, we have hope. And then finally, this integration of heaven and earth. We should believe in our environment because God believes in it. There's some questions about it, as I've already alluded to. How do you overcome the disastrous effects of sin and evil? This will always be a a question that will be hard for this viewpoint of atonement, I think, to answer. All right, I'm keeping us a little long. Any of you need to leave for the 11 o'clock service? But, all right, any final question? Any comment about this?
0: Well, I just did a study on living hope, and I think by keeping this out of the churches <clears throat> in America or whatever, it's evil's attempt at destroying our hope. Because there's people born, I think, with different... Some people love nature, some people love different things, and are being told by the church that's not important. Yeah. You, you know, uh this isn't important, you're a sinner, your flesh is corrupt, you're bad, and I grew up hating myself when in the true sense, God was born in the flesh, and I know there's different meanings for flesh, but to know my flesh is weak, but it's not uh, always lost. You know, I just think there was such a mixture growing up in my generation in church, and there's freedom... In the church, if we would come to terms with this, to let people with different creative abilities to connect or worship maybe through different things, I just think it's beautiful. And I know one other thing. I don't know. Randy Acorn wrote that book about heaven, and I don't know how biblical accurate it is. But what it did was touch a deep place in me. That I really hope to have a body someday. That I was created to be walking around with two legs. And so much of what I grew up learning in the church as a child was I would not have a body. And I'd be this floating around thing. And I thought, oh my gosh, that was such a comfort to think that we'd have a new heaven and earth and have a body. And a resurrected body. A resurrected resurrected body. body. That it wasn't sinful of me to really wish I had a body someday. I just thought all those things were a huge comfort
1: to us. Who cares about that? We will be healed. Let me close with a prayer. Our great Heavenly Father, we are awed, struck with wonder of Thy mighty power and of Thy infinite love for all things. Help us, O Lord, to have hearts big enough to bring in all this to be part of Thy redemptive work. And this I pray in thy name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.